Welcome to Build Big Ideas. This is Jason Toth. And this is Scott Snelling. We explore infrastructure. So Jason, this episode, I wanted to talk about a book that I read called Seven Powers, The Foundations of Business Strategy by Hamilton Helmer, specifically how the concepts in this book apply to the infrastructure realm. I'm, I'm pretty excited about this. It's something that I've kind of thought a lot about over the years. And there's a lot of other people that write about business strategy, notably Michael Porter from Harvard Business School. Warren Buffett has lots of concepts about moats. And there's certainly others uh, that have tried to systematize this. And Hamilton Helmer really comes with his own philosophy. He builds off work that others have done, but he brings a totally different approach to the subject that I was completely impressed by. And I really, really enjoyed the book. And I think it's fun applying it to the different types of infrastructure. And that's something you pushed me to do, which to not just read the book, but also apply it. So with that, why don't we dive into some of the concepts here? I know as a former army officer, thinking about strategy is certainly a part of your background. I'm very curious to see uh, or hear some of the contributions you might have or perspectives you might have coming at it from another angle. Absolutely. To start off with just a few definitions, I'll try to not just turn this into a dictionary lesson, but he really defines his terms. And so strategy, he defines as the route to power in significant markets. So that brings about what's the definition of power. He defines power as the potential to realize persistent differential returns is the key to value creation. Power requires both a benefit and a barrier. So most businesses don't have power. If you're an average business or a below average business, you don't have power. <laughs> Only the special few businesses really have power. And really you probably want to be investing in and working at businesses that have power. It's probably just all going to be a lot more fun for you if, if you align yourself that way, as opposed to swimming upstream at uh, businesses that aren't really good, both as an investor or as a employee. So that's a little bit of defining some terms. We can come back to defining some more terms, but as far as the powers he defines or he identifies seven different powers, thus the name of the book. But first, before I name the seven powers, I wanna point out that operational excellence is not a power. It's necessary, but not sufficient. It's really table stakes to the game. So you could have a great strategy, but if you don't execute it, well, you're never going to realize the benefits of that strategy. But if you have a bad strategy and you execute it perfectly, that's also not going to work. So you really uh, need the table stakes of bringing operational uh, excellence to what you do, but you need to be applying it in a strategy that has power that'll lead to power if you want to have above average or exceptional results in your business. So with that, the seven powers he talks about are scale, network, counter-positioning, switching costs, branding, cornered resource, and process power. We can talk a little bit more about each of those as we go along. And we can also talk about particular infrastructure businesses that show those different types of power. This is just my opinion, I guess, these different businesses. I, I think most of them are right. Hamilton Helmer would probably agree with them. 
they're they're not based on me doing deep deep research on the annual reports and 10Ks and financial filings of all these businesses, but a little bit more and just my familiarity with with the industries and where I think they align on these categories that Hamilton Helmer sets up. One of the things that comes to mind is you read off the seven powers, and, and I'm try, I'm recalling that definition of power that included the benefit and the barrier were the two words that I keyed on. It seems though that the seven powers are all aligned primarily with a barrier or the barrier concept. Is, is that is that what your take was? Yeah, this is what Warren Buffett refers to as a moat. That's the terminology he used. So a barrier is is something that it, you got something good. This power and there's something that prevents your competitors from doing the same thing. If your competitors can do it, it's not a power for anybody because then you're all just doing the same thing, getting average returns. Nobody's getting excellent returns. So you need to have got something. This power that others can't can't copy. Your competitors can't copy it. They can't access it. And that's the barrier. And there's probably lots of barriers out there that don't have a benefit. <laughs> that's not a power. It's, you need, it needs to be something that you can prevent your competitors from doing and allows you to have excellent returns because of it. Just preventing your competitors from doing something, but it doesn't actually lead to you know more money for you. <laughs> that's not a power. So hopefully that works. He's got what he's called the value axiom. He's been inspired by Warren Buffett, but what's interesting about it is he goes in a totally different direction and the sort of concepts he comes up with, a lot of them are very unique to him. The sort of businesses he's invested in are just completely polar opposite of anything like Warren Buffett would invest in. So it makes it very interesting. The value axiom, he says, uh, strategy has one and only one objective, maximizing potential fundamental business value. So that's basically, you know, take all the cash flows in the future that are going to come to your business, discount them back to now, and they should be really good. <laughs> that's that's your that's your value axiom and what what you're trying to do with your strategy. When when I think of strategy in the broadest sense and from a military planning or trying to achieve an overall aim, you know, the the broad definition that I've always liked is using limited means for unlimited benefit or gain. So the way that is defined in this book by Hamilton, it's pretty narrow to the business. So I think it'll be interesting as we progress our conversation and we look at the infrastructure piece, which in itself is business-like, but not necessarily in all industries, a straight business. So, Yeah. Well, I think your definition there maps pretty well. You know, the businesses, if a small investment can lead to huge gains if you get the, the right. if, if it's, if you invest early in a strategy, company yeah. that later has power that can, can work. So he's got what's called the fundamental equation of strategy, which he says value equals the market size now times the growth times the market share times the differential margin. So that's the framework he uses for figuring value. And that there is way different than somebody like Warren Buffett. Uh, Warren Buffett's generally buying some super stable business that he thinks won't change. He tries to buy it at a bargain price because other people think it's going to change. They think it's going to decline. And he's like, eh, no, I won't decline. They have a moat. They're going to be able to continue on. All these competitors might be assaulting this business now, but this old stable company with power is going to fend them off and 
and I can buy it at a discount because everybody thinks they're going down. That's more a Warren Buffett strategy. Th this guy, Hamilton Helmer, he's really identifying companies that are going to grow massively in the future. So he's betting on change. Warren Buffett tends to bet against change. So it's pretty interesting. And then he's also got here, he defines uh, surplus leader margin, which I thought was an interesting concept. And that's basically, if you're a company with power, you might have competitors and you might have the power to put them all out of business. You can just lower your prices until nobody else can make any profit and they go out of business. And then now you have a monopoly. He gives some different ways for to calculate the surplus leader margin for different businesses. Now it's sort of a notional thing because a company with power doesn't actually want to put all their competitors out of business because next thing the government's going to jump on. If they're actually a monopoly, the government's going to have to get involved, break them up, regulate them, you know, whatever. So this is sort of a notional concept, but if you have power, this is where the rubber hits the road. You've got some surplus leader margin that he puts some ways to calculate in the book. The other thing that he does that's very unique, it's one thing to categorize the different types of powers, which he did here, the seven powers. That's a static situation. So you're analyzing the business as it is now. Does this business have or have not power? But what he does further in this book, which I'd never seen before and is probably the most important thing, which is trying to project who's going to have power in the future. Because all the value in a business is in the future. When you buy a part of a business, it's all about what's going to happen in the future. So he provides some tools to analyze that, which he refers to as dynamics. So he breaks them up at different stages of the business. So if you have a startup new business, he calls that origination. There's powers uh, that you could have is, is cornered resource or counter positioning. Basically at that early stage, only those two powers are open to you. The, the other five powers aren't going to be open to you at that stage of the business. And then if your business grows and it's in a takeoff phase where it's rapidly growing now, it's not just a startup, it's a viable and growing business. In that takeoff phase, he identifies three powers in that phase. There's network scale and switching costs. So only those three would be available to you. And then as the, the business uh, gets older and it hits a stable phase, there's only two powers that he identifies as available to those businesses. This is when they first gain their powers is, is brand and, and process power. So we'll go more deeply into those. I'd never really seen that framework before. And I think it's pretty cool tool for analyzing businesses in their different stages and, and what the right strategies are for them at the different stages. Okay. So another thing he points out is that not only is invention the gateway to power, but also the possibility of power and the associated durable success fuels the invention. So there's some others, I think Peter Thiel or others have said uh, something along the lines like all good businesses have at their core a secret. And he's saying similar but different that at their core, there's an invention somewhere whether that's they invented a new process or they invented something. Somebody came up with an idea of how we're gonna do something different that our competitors can't do. They got there first and now they can keep everybody else away from this great idea, this great invention, this secret. Now this is not just summarizing the book. We're going to try to talk about applying it to the infrastructure industry. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this as we go along, Jason. 
And I wanted to work through it, starting at a startup business at origination, and we'll see what powers are available to them. There's cornered resource and counter positioning. So I'll do a definition of cornered resource. It's when you have preferential access at attractive terms to a coveted asset that can independently enhance value. And then there's five tests that should be idiosyncratic, non-arbitrage, which means it's bought at a discount, uh, transferable, ongoing, and sufficient. That's his definition there. It's a little dry, but I, I tried to identify some businesses. And what I came up with was uh, cell phone towers. There's a firm called AMT that has cell phone towers. And, uh, you know, this is something that once you build that tower, it's hard for others to get the permissions. It's kind of like a regulatory barrier. It also, it doesn't make sense for other people to build a tower right next to yours. It's also railroads, gravel pits, landfills, pipelines. These are things that like, once you've built one, it, it pretty much doesn't make sense for other people to, to build another one. So just as an example, gravel pits and landfills, it's really heavy to haul trash around. If you're the first one to build a gravel pit or a landfill in an area, you, if somebody else starts building one, you could just drop your prices down and uh, put them out of business. Basically, it doesn't make any sense for anybody to invest in a new one of those right next to yours. The other yeah. thing that's interesting from a cornered resource perspective, as I heard you list out those potential infrastructure examples is real estate. They're sort of tied to some plot of ground, some real estate and land is a finite resource. <laughs> real estate is a finite resource. And so if you find that one spot for that cell tower, you can get the ability to put it up. That could be that, that in itself is land-based, same with railroads, gravel pits. I mean, alignments for railroads, that's particularly difficult, especially now. Gravel pits and landfills have long lives to them typically. So they yeah. are built and you're talking decades, ideally, that those have the capacity for. So I think that's an interesting aspect of cornered resources as well. The uh, real estate, the things, the infrastructure tends to be real estate based. And yeah, that's a well, finite resource. I think besides just land being finite, regulatory approval can be very finite, as well as like public sentiment can be very finite. You know, that nimbyism, if you're like, hey, I want to build this pipeline in your backyard, people get angry. Right. You know, but what, so that means if you've already got a pipeline, that's just another barrier that's going to prevent your competitors from putting in another pipeline. And same thing with a landfill, railroads, all these things. So we think cell towers and we talk frequencies. I mean, there's a finite number of frequencies, if you will. There's a regulatory aspect to that. So when we talk about communication over frequencies and the spectrum of frequencies that are available, you know, those are sold and those are finite resources too. So yeah, that definitely not just real estate. Yeah. Businesses that have those things can have really good returns. Some of the other ones we had Gary on with the Wist Jenny Elsner lab. Mm -hmm. They're about the only one. I'm not aware of any other commercial engineering firm that has a lab like that. They're a privately held company. So I don't know if they have great returns or not, but something like that could be, you know, it's pretty hard for others to build a lab. And he pointed out the staff that know how to use it. That could be a cornered resource for them. And then you bring in branding, which you, we talk later, that they've gained a reputation for their expertise. So now that they have the resource, it's hard to put forth the financial resources to build that and cornered resource of the talent that's on board. And then they've really made a name for themselves. There's a lot of aspects 
from the full spectrum from origination all the way to that maturity, if you will. Yeah, totally. Regulated monopolies have a cornered resource. So that's why the government comes in and regulates them. Now, obviously you'd prefer to have an unregulated monopoly. That's a better business to own, but regulated monopolies basically have cornered a resource and the government acknowledges that and come in. So electric service in the U.S. tends to be that way. Gas and water, those things are more like the government regulated utilities. Another example and this is from from the history books. I hope this doesn't go on anymore, but there's the book Path to Power by Robert Caro. And he lays out in, in detail how the contractor Brown and Root basically bought <laughs> Lyndon Johnson as their, as their politician in their pocket. And uh, he was able to throw the, the Mansfield Marshall Ford Dam construction their way. And that was the start. They went from a tiny construction firm to now they're a a huge firm. So, I mean, that's why the laws are so strict on this sort of thing. Cause if a company can get away with buying politicians, then that's a, an unfair advantage. So moving on to the next one, counter positioning is, is the next, next power that if you have a startup business at origination, this is one you can use. And this is a concept that Hamilton Helmer really developed. He's the first one to, to coin this phrase and apply it. He used it to invest in Netflix and explain Netflix's strategy. They put Blockbuster out of business because they did away with late fees. A similar concept in, in infrastructure is uh, Nucor Steel versus U.S. Steel. So U.S. Steel was a huge, had integrated mills where they were making structural steel and rebars and all that sort of stuff. And Nucor Steel came along with mini mills and they started with rebar, which is like the lowest quality, lowest value steel. And rather than starting with ore, like US steel, basically one end of their plants comes in iron ore and the other end of their plant leaves high quality steel. It's amazing you grew up in this area, Jason. I bet you have some interesting insights on it. Yeah, many generations of steel workers (laughs) on my side. So Nucor Steel came along and said, well, there's lots of old steel that we can recycle. We don't need this huge mill. Well, we're going to do a mini mill. And they started off with rebar and they'd take recycled steel. I mean, they're probably getting it for hardly any cost and uh, it's just scrap. And they'd feed it in their mini mill and outcome rebar and they'd sell it for profit way more than what U.S. Steel could ever sell their rebar for. And U.S. Steel thought, oh, I mean, U.S. Steel could have stomped them out at that time, if they'd built mini mills, but they would have been cannibalizing their own business. So what they did is they just said, ah, we didn't really need rebar anyways. That's the junkiest steel. We make the high quality stuff. And then a few years later, Nucor developed uh, a process to make the next level of higher quality steel. And then a few years later, the next level of higher quality steel. And after a couple decades of this, they could make all the steel <laughs> from the mini mill and us steel was basically hardly left with a business anymore because they just kept stage by stage abandoning their business rather than competing growing up in the steel area jason do you have any thoughts or comments you probably have inside info family friends and so <laughs> yeah. not really I, I mean this is very much on the blue collar side i didn't not the business strategy side yeah my my grandfather so this is uh, gary work so part of u.s steel tin division area right there in northwest indiana is where i grew up and grandfather retired over there after 45 years and 
father retired out of there after 44 years. He was an industrial electrician. I got a chance to tour the mills, which the integrated mill concept, seeing the ore come in and exit <laughs> the whole process, if you will, over miles of distance of factory and, and manufacture as a finished product to could be used. In this case, I went is the tin division. So it was rolls of tin that would be used for tin cans and so forth. But uh, it was really, really cool. It made a big impression on me as a young child to see the whole thing and understand what it came from and what we see on every day on the shelves in the supermarket in the house where they came from and how they're made. But I do remember talk in more recent years about mini mills and the impacts that it was having. That was household talk and more associated with union, a discussion and concern and so forth. But yeah, insider, insider knowledge on impact, but not necessarily on true understanding the depth of the strategy, but it, it's a very interesting concept. Yeah. I mean, I think most people, when they get a job, don't think about the strategy of the business they're in, but that's right. probably more than anything going to control the way your life turns out. If you get in a business that really has power, they're not the sort of business that needs to go through repetitive layoffs and downsizing and have labor strife. If, if you get in a business that has power and is growing and dominating their competitors, that's going to provide opportunity. Probably the new core steel <laughs> blue collar workers were having a lot more fun than yeah. the U.S. steel workers. So it's sort of interesting. So moving on to the next phase of business development, if, if you're in a business that's now in the takeoff, it's, it's found a product market fit. It's really starting to grow rapidly. The, the powers that this sort of business would have access to establishing are uh, network scale and switching costs. So that's what they'd want to be focused on. As far as network, to define that term, that's where the value to the customer increases as the installed base increases. So an example of that is old landline telephones. AT&T just came to dominate that space because if you've got a telephone, but none of your friends do, you're not going to want a telephone. But as more and more of your friends get telephones, you're going to want a telephone. <laughs> so that's network effects. And of course, in this age of the internet, there's a lot more of, of these sort of network effects. Another one, public transportation, I think is really a network effect. And we talked about that a little bit in the city you're in, in Fort Collins, the, the how they're planning to build out public transportation there. And then Minneapolis, where St. Paul, where I used to live, they're starting to build out a public transportation light rail system. And it's, it's hard. You're going to get a lot more usage in the system if you have a whole network. But if you just have one line, there's a lot of people aren't going to be able to get where they need to go that way. So every, as you get more customers, you can afford to build more lines as you have more lines and it's better for the customers. So that's like a classic network effect. Tipping point to be reached to get to that network that is now self-sustaining and it can generate its own revenue. It serves enough customer base, has the potential for growth. I, I, one other one that comes to mind when we talk about this particular power and infrastructure is electric charging stations and electric vehicles. So we haven't reached that tipping point yet. I know there's a lot of talk about electric vehicles with the current administration's priorities, but also with the rapid advancement in technology and acknowledgement that there's real future there, but the charging stations is a limiter, right? If you were to look at barriers for the consumer for electric vehicles, 
one of the top two reasons they would say is that charging station. Do I have full flexibility and, and movement? Because the whole of the personally owned automobile is based in the core principle rooted in American uh, culture, which is that rugged individual is the basis and the ability to move about freely and have that freedom, exercise that freedom. And electric vehicle only matches as far as it can be charged, <laughs> whereas there's gas stations aplenty. So that's sort of another one that I thought of on network. Yeah, that's a great one. I think that's a great example. If we move to the next one in this, you know, a liftoff phase, uh, the growth phase of businesses, it was scale. And uh, scale is when the per unit cost declines as the production volume increases. You're getting scale economy. Some examples of that is uh, you were just talking about electric charging stations. Well, Tesla's famous for building the Gigafactory. And so what they're trying to do there is they're building a huge factory for electric car batteries. And they think, we'll see if it works, that they'll be able to build the batteries for a cheaper cost because they've basically gone big. Nobody else will be able to go that big. And they're going to try to grab those scale economies from the start and, and dominate electric vehicle batteries. So some other examples, cable broadband, internet is a scale example. I think US Steel before the Minimels is a, totally a scale I don't know the history of the steel industry, but I've got to imagine the scale there is just massive. And once you've built an integrated mill, nobody else is going to be able to invest the money to build the same thing. You'll be able to dominate that market. I think using lobbyists in Washington is a scale thing. Once you get to be a really big business, you can afford to hire the lobbyists that that can steer things towards the incumbent's direction. That's something we talked about, the regulatory capture in the past. Kind of the flip side of that is if you've got a business where you can do a little regulatory capture, that's going to be good for you. I noted here that I think eventually engineering consulting firms might get a scale advantage. I don't think they're there yet. There's just too many of them, but the industry has been consolidating quite a bit over the years. If you get down to two or three mega engineering infrastructure consulting firms, then you get a consolidated industry, sometimes referred to as uh, rationalized competition, or it's really what it is. It's basically tacit collusion. So it's illegal to call up the phone, your competitor and say, Hey, I'll bid high on this one. You bid high on the next one. And we'll like trade jobs. That's illegal. But as you get to down to two or three companies in an industry, they don't have to pick up the phone and they never agree this job's your, it's not, it's tacit. They can kind of know what each other's strengths and weaknesses are and they can know, okay, we've got the edge on this job. Those guys have the edge and they're not fighting over every scrap of work. Like when you have a fragmenting industry where there's hundreds of players, <laughs> whoever's the most desperate might win the, the low bid on that. So yeah, yeah. Another one that comes to mind, solar wind industry. We talked a little bit about the growth of that industry and the reduction in costs. And a lot of it's associated with scale on either of those. So those two come to mind when I think of scale. And when we bring that to bear, the cheaper it seems price point to bring about solar, I think wind will do the same. That's still, I think, in the earliest stages of that. But solar, I think, has reached that point. Yeah, those are great examples. I hadn't thought of those. I think in particular, the solar factories 
that are making the solar the units, that's got to be a scale. And then also the wind with the offshore wind, he was talking about how gigantic these things are. I mean, you start getting into some very, very specialized plant to make that stuff. That's got to right. have scale economies. If you're the only one that can make this gigantic thing, you're going to, nobody's going to try to follow you into that. Yeah. So the next one in our, in our takeoff phase, you might want to look at switching costs and do a switching cost strategy. The examples I thought most of that were software examples, Bentley, CAD software, Autodesk, CAD software, Adina, like finite element programs, even obviously Microsoft that's used in every industry is a key example of this. To, to learn 3D CAD program, that's not the sort of thing you just pick up and start clicking around in there and <laughs> make a 3D model and print it out on the plans. It takes really weeks or hundreds of hours to become proficient in those software packages. And once you are, you're not going to switch. And those things tend to get written into owners. They'll have like design standards where all their drawings need to be in this file format that really only Bentley puts out. So once you're written into the client's design standards, you can start upping your prices a little bit and, and get a good return. So it may be a historical one on switching costs. I'm still sort of pondering this one as the alternating current, direct current decision. There's a decision early on, but there's a major switching cost, which we talk about transforming. But And it's being juggled right now as we look at some of the benefits of direct current over long transmission. And there's a, a value equation to determine, I think it's roughly anything over 300 miles, the the line loss benefit that you gain from switching to direct current for that transmission length for 300 plus pays for itself over the life of the infrastructure and overcomes the upfront cost, which is the most expensive part, which is that at each end, the conversion. But anyway, I, I'm a little bit going down the rabbit hole, but this idea, the switching cost between AC and DC is, is maybe one. And this was back in the day of Tesla and Edison. Um, when yeah, it Tesla invented. versus Edison, right? right and right. yeah, that's a great example. Uh, that's another one I didn't think of. And I think it's a great example. This just shows how, if you really have power, how big of a difference it can make, you know, AC versus DC and how, what are we like a hundred years later and right. AC one and that we all have AC plugs. How many are surrounding us in the room right now? So yeah, for the grid, the whole grid's off AC. Now the, I think DC is making resurgence for that long distance transmission, but then also for smaller voltages and we talk about electronics and so forth, but, but still, yeah, it's another one would be railway gauge. Again, this is a historical example. But. That's a great example of a barrier without a benefit, right? Like, how are you going to get rich off, off the gauge? I, I'm not sure anybody got rich off that decision. They, they had to standardize and something standardized. And once it's standardized, it's never going to change. But whether it was three feet or four feet or whatever, I'm not sure it m made a difference about this guy got rich and that guy didn't. Okay, so moving on to the next one. If, if your business is in the stable phase, so this is you know old established business that's very stable, what sort of strategies should you focus on? What sort of powers might be accessible to you? And Helmer says there's brand and there's process power. So brand he defines as Durable attribution of higher value to an objectively identical offering that arises from historical information about the seller. 
So basically you trust the seller more. So you're willing to pay more to buy the same thing from this person versus the other person, uh, which might be selling you the same thing and maybe cheaper, but you just don't trust them. And you think, oh, if I try to buy it from them, it just, something's going to happen bad. It's either that's, it's uh, not as high quality as it looks or something's going to go wrong if I buy from that person. Let's stick with this person I trust. So that's really what brand is. And normally brand is really about selling to consumers. Most of the time, it's normally not something that you see in business to business or business to government. I did think possibly you could interpret in fasteners and paint some, some brand value there. And uh, these can be really great businesses because if you're building some huge thing, the fasteners are going to be a tiny portion of the cost and the same with the paint, but, but they make a huge difference in the quality of the finished product. So you're, you're willing to pay more just to avoid the hassle. So companies like Fastenal and Hilti for fasteners and for paint, Sherman Williams, these are colossally good businesses. And I think a lot of it is the contractor, it's just not that expensive for them. And they just want to buy the thing once, make sure that that fastener works, make sure that that paint works, that it goes on right. It looks good when it's done and so forth. And contractors are willing to pay more to avoid the potential hassle. But I think that's something like a, like a brand, even in the business to business phase there. Yeah, I agree. Being in the contracting world, I uh, construction contracting, I would agree. I mean, fasteners, those are the two, right, that you would rely on <laughs> from that perspective when we build infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. So then the last one we've got here in the stable phase is process power. And this is another way I think of this as culture. And uh, he defines it as embedded company organization and activity, which enable lower costs and or superior product and which can be matched only by an extended commitment. So I think this sounds a lot like operational excellence, which we already said is not a power. I think the difference is this is operational excellence that others can't access. It's taken so long. Maybe it takes you decades of having this great culture and solving a million little issues to get your process just perfect. And, and even others copying you, seeing exactly what you're doing, they still can't do it. That's what makes it a process power. And there's a couple examples of that. The classic example is Toyota. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. And then one that I think we talked about before in one of our earlier examples was Les Schwab Tires. He talks about how the big tire companies would come sit in his parking lot and watch exactly what his workers were doing. And then they'd try to write it into a manual and and they couldn't copy it. And it's because the difference was in the heart of the workers. They cared. He treated his workers right. And they really passionately cared and had the right incentives. That's what they brought to work every day. And that's not something that's easy to copy for a competitor, even if they watch every single thing you're doing. So interesting when you talk about the process power and you get to more of the core motive and motivation, uh, sense of purpose, if you will, that is a little bit of a contrast to the word process, if you will, because that seems very operations listed, but I, I agree with you. I think that is what it seems like he's getting after and what defines it and process power from 
just operational excellence, which is very systematic, almost, you know. Yeah. Well, I think, right. I think Hamilton Helmer might be a German guy. His, and it, maybe culture is just like too squishy of a concept for him. His, his book is like highly analytical and part of what makes right. it awesome. And maybe I've got this wrong, but I kind of see it as, as culture. And so I actually worked at Toyota so I could share a little story, even though it's yeah. not directly infrastructure related. But when I was in college, I took a quarter off to work at, at Toyota as like an engineering intern, basically. And it was a pretty cool experience. And I've worked at and studied at a lot of pretty prestigious organizations and you view them from the outside and you think, wow, you know, what an amazing organization. And then you get inside and you're like, oh my God, it's crazy in here. A lot of organizations look a lot more impressive from the outside than they feel on the inside. And I can say 100% Toyota is nothing like that. The People show up to Toyota every day with just a huge amount of dedication to what they're doing. I've, I've never seen people show up and care so much every day. And it's the culture and uh, it's pretty cool. And so to me, it's a little hard to define this process power, but having seen it from the inside, I, I do know what it feels like. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything I could do to kind of clarify that more, but. No, I, I follow. I, I do follow There's a couple of organizations that I've been in. They're not really infrastructure related, but on the, on the military side where you know it when you see it, it's very typical that the impression you get from the outside is one of organization and, and so forth. And when you get on the inside, it's maybe not as organized <laughs> or <laughs> may, maybe, yeah, the, the culture that the exterior skin is, is one and the interior guts of the organization is another. So I mean, I think that's a good way of describing it. If you were, yeah, just everybody's pushing in the same direction at Toyota. Like all the, all the oars are going in at the right time, pushing in the right direction. And that's pretty hard to achieve in any organization. Yeah. I'd say um, I call it unity of purpose. Yeah. Achieving unity of purpose at the full level, all the way from the highest to the lowest level in that organization. If you can achieve true unity of purpose, that's, uh, and that's the, an accomplishment. The way you know Toyota had process power is the Numi plant, which was in Los Angeles. It's a famous story. I could tell the very short version here, but Toyota wanted to enter the United States, but they were kind of wary about doing it. So they, they partnered with General Motors and um, General Motors had just closed this plant outside of Los Angeles. It was their worst plant that just morale was terrible. The cars terrible quality. Like everything was wrong with this plant. They closed it. So Toyota said, Hey, why don't we do a partnership? Let's reopen this plant. We'll do it together. We'll make this model um, together. And it'll be like a joint venture. And Toyota said, we'll try to do our management style with the American workers. You can watch us. And Toyota did, they came in, they rehired all the work, same workers that were the worst workers in general motors. And within a very short period of time, it was the highest performing plant that General Motors had any involvement with. And so Toyota kind of walked away and was like, oh, hey, look, it works with American workers too, you know, <laughs> our management style. And GM looked at this and, you know, they were inside the room for every single thing that Toyota did. And they were never able, they could maybe put in the 
and Encord and start the quality improvement meetings, but they never captured, they couldn't recreate the culture. A lot of American businesses have conflict between management and labor. And the whole Toyota model is built on not having that. They really do that by putting the line workers first in a real way. GM wasn't structured in a way where that was even possible. So some other examples in preparing for this episode, I, I went to the S&P 500 and just started scrolling down, looking for infrastructure companies. I didn't do a totally thorough, get all the way down, but it's sort of interesting to me. There aren't really big contracting firms on there. I, I do know there, there are some big contracting firms like Kiwit is an example. I've worked with them. They're great. There's another one called Chinbro. And I don't know if they have power or not. But I think most publicly traded contractors do not have power. But some of these privately held ones that have a lot of employee ownership, their filings aren't public, so we don't really know. But I think they could have power. I've worked on construction projects with, with those firms, at Kiwit and Chimbro, that I'm calling out specifically. And it's kind of like the difference between walking into a Toyota plant and somebody else's plant. People show up motivated and doing the right thing and paddling together. And some of those private firms might have power. Another thing I wanted to talk about, there's this quote from John Malone, and I'm going to censor it a little bit because he uses some salty language, but he was actually describing non-infrastructure business models. But I think it really applies to when you think of infrastructure businesses, a lot of them are these big contractors and big engineering firms. So I think this quote tends to apply to them. And uh, what John Malone says, when a client comes to you and says, I want you to make this for us, we're going to own it. We'll pay you a 10% above cost spread, but you have no ownership, no that's a bad model. That's making widgets, not a great wealth builder. So that's Malone basically describing the sort of businesses he'd stay far away from. And I worked in engineering consulting for some years. I think engineering consulting is actually a worse business than what John Malone here is using salty language to insult. In engineering consulting, you don't get a 10% above cost spread. You're typically capped at, at 9% and also almost no owner's pay you the spread. Most contracts are cost plus fixed fee. So if everything goes perfect, you'll get 9%. But if you make some errors and you spend too much time, you go over budget, that's your problem, not the owner's problem. So there's like a million ways to lose a ton of money. Like if we look at the fig example, I mean, they got paid like, you know, $900,000 for that bridge. How much do you think that project lost them? If that project went perfect, they would have made, you know, like 90 grand, probably less. You had 9%, I didn't do the 70, 80 grand. If it went perfect, I, I mean, there's no way they didn't lose millions and millions and millions of dollars on that job. So that's engineering consulting is a pretty rough business. I think the contracting is a pretty rough business too. Constructing something is hard and there's a lot of ways for things to go wrong. And if everything goes well, there aren't a lot of ways for you to make, you know, infinite returns or huge returns. If you do the job 10 times as well as anybody else, you don't get paid 10 times as much. You pretty much have yeah. a set profit. Yet these are essential businesses, right? Without, when we think of infrastructure in particular, it's interesting that from a purely business standpoint, you think to yourself, well, this might not be the best business to get into, but 
without those businesses, we have a lot of problems. <laughs> so it's interesting to try and reconcile those two thoughts, but I follow the logic for sure. Well, one of the things I forgot to mention earlier on, I don't mean to out you, but you're currently working for a contractor now. <laughs> yeah, I've worked in some bad businesses as I've disclosed in the past and some good ones. I think a cornered resource is, you know, DBE contractors can corner a resource. And you're actually, from what I understand, working for a DBE contractor, which is government set goals for, they call it DBEs, disadvantaged business enterprise. Maybe you could talk about this a little bit more, but you're going to have an up close view on it. But that is an area where you can have a countered resource. I've seen it in the past where there's these small specialty firms that the bigger firms just have to hit their DBE goal in order to comply with their client's goal. There, there might not be a lot of competition in finding how you're going to meet that goal when you're going out to the suppliers that are going to hit that for you. And that gets a little bit to the regulatory structure or the policy structure of the federal government, where, as you mentioned, DBE goals for larger firms for jobs that are very large, and they're seeking larger firms to have some percentage of the work go to disadvantaged small business. But then the federal government itself for smaller jobs set has set asides for small disadvantaged businesses in different categories. But so I agree with you. I think there is a little bit of a cornered market. There's still competition within those set asides. So it's not a monopoly, if you will, because there's plenty of small businesses out there competing. But if you can establish yourself in that and stay at the right size, because you can size out of being a small business if you're too successful. I think there's a corner of the market, but there is a limit to it. It's, it's not infinite growth potential that way. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I could definitely. And that, that's a construction contractor, infrastructure. That's one way where maybe you can get around some of the challenges you highlighted on this uh, cost spread and the limitations of it. And, and really a lot of what you highlighted earlier too is about risk and who bears the risk. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and if, if you're in a construction contractor, depending on the contract setup, which in many cases for like the federal government, you bear a majority of the risk. Yeah, there's an investor called Monesh Pumbrai. And he's got a concept called uh, Dondo investing, which it's not even Hindi. It's like a sub-dialect, but it means an uneven bet. So the ideal is to have, if everything goes bad, you don't lose too much and everything goes well, you can make a fortune. That's a, like a perfect, this is a sort of bet like, yes, all day long, sure do that bet. one. Yeah. A lot of the businesses we were talking about are like a reverse Dondo bet. You know, right. there's lots of ways you can lose everything, but no ways that you can make any more than 9%. <laughs> so that's like an anti-Dondo bet. And in general, in a lifetime of bet making, that's probably not going to lead you to really great places. It might make a living for you, but it'll knock a few people out that wish they <laughs> didn't start down that road. And probably a lot of people will survive and do fine and get their 9% out of it. So yeah, with that, I don't really have anything else. All I can say is I really, I recommend this book. It totally knocked my socks off. It's only 178 pages. It's small. It's dense. It's one of the most densely packed information to page ratio I've ever read. And I had a lot of fun discussing strategy and I hope we'll do some future discussions on different schools of strategy as applied to infrastructure businesses. Yes. Yeah, it's an interesting book. I haven't read it, but just some of the summaries and 
chat with you about it. It was very interesting. So some good stuff to cross pollinate over to infrastructure. Yeah. I probably should have pointed out earlier. He's a professor at Stanford university. So he's got some academic credibility Chops, yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for joining us for the build big ideas podcast for show notes. Please see www.buildbigideas.com. To ask us a question or suggest a podcast guest or topic, you can contact us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or by email. Contact info on the website. Please consider signing up for our mailing list to receive a short monthly email with links to the best of what we are reading and writing. Please rate the Build Big Ideas podcast on Apple, iTunes, to help us find interested listeners. If you enjoy Build Big Ideas, please tell a friend or two. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Do not consider anything to be discussed, professional engineering or investment advice. Views discussed here are personal and not representative of employers or any other organization that the hosts or guests are associated with.